for Pacifica Radio, August 7, 2022. I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm editorial director of Antiwar.com and editor of the new book, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. You can find my full interview archive, more than 5,700 of them now, going back to 2003, at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And you can follow me on Twitter at scotthortonshow. All right, today's guest is Connor Freeman. He's assistant editor at the Libertarian Institute and is uh, focused very sharply on American foreign policy. And he has a couple of important ones here at issue. First of all, Biden and allies continue to put Iran in the crosshairs. Welcome to the show, Connor. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks for having me on. All right. So you got this uh, great piece about uh, what's going on with Iran. Two important tracks there. On one hand, the never-ending negotiations over re-entering the Iran nuclear deal of 2015, and at the same time, all these hawkish preparations for war. And then you've got this other great piece about China we're going to talk about as well. But first of all, you know, the top headline on antiwar.com on Friday was that under European pressure, America re-enters JCPOA re-entry talks with the Iranians. And so it's not all the way dead yet, but please break down for us. What is the impasse on getting America back in the deal? And Iran, I guess, is still officially in the deal, but no longer abiding by it. But how do we get everybody reactivated here? Yeah. So uh, last time I was on your show, we talked about um, we covered like virtually the middle of last year when Raisi's government took power. Actually, a little bit of the Rouhani negotiations where Biden basically told them that um, if we return to the deal, if you, if the U S returns to the deal, uh, and you're in compliance, we can still reimpose sanctions and impose new sanctions and, and, and basically kill the deal anyway. Uh, and so, but regardless, the Iranians stayed committed to diplomacy. Now, um, we talked about, you know, a series of Israeli attacks on Iran, uh, you know, drone strikes, assassinations that have, like, there were like, potentially six, some of them are unverified, but like, you know, six or so in a, almost a month, which is pretty unprecedented. Um, that we talked about, ma- you know, a massive push in Congress from the Democrats, and especially in the Republicans. Um, I just say more notably the Democrats because they should be supporting this thing. Um, and, uh, and basically they said, you know, the IRGC is the, you know, the Iran is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, blah, blah. And, uh, and the IRGC, uh, we, because of this and because how close they are to a, nu- a nuclear bomb, we can never, uh, return to the deal. And so Biden, basically when the deal was practically finalized, you know, by March, it had, they had surpassed all these different obstacles. The Iranians, uh, essentially had the deal negotiated on their terms. Um, and there was, uh, as you know, as Joseph Burrell continues to, uh, the foreign policy chief of the EU continues to reiterate, even like this week, that basically the deal is more or less done. Like he, he's saying that right now he has with precision broken down what, you know, needs to be done, the respective steps on both sides. The what sanctions need to be lifted. This is what they're doing right now. What sanctions need to be lifted, the scope of sanctions relief that the U.S. will uh, give Iran 
and then what the, what nuclear commitments Iran will return to, which they were in total compliance with until 2019, a year after Trump killed the you know left the deal illegally and, and reimposed sanctions, and so it, that's all basically there uh, and ready to go. It's it, what it is is that. You know, the U.S. imposed new sanctions this week, for instance, uh, maybe in anticipation of this, because what, what continues to happen is the Americans have this opportunity to return to the deal. It makes total sense. Now, originally, one of the arguments that I you know, was sympathetic to was that in advance of Biden's trip to the Middle East last month, uh, where he was going to be going to Jeddah and going to Israel uh, and meeting with the Saudis and, and meeting with Yair Lapid, the new acting uh, prime minister in Israel, that there, you know, that because there had been these restarted talks in Doha that had been facilitated by the EU or really brokered by the EU again, this is Enrique Mora, the nuclear negotiator, sort of the key diplomat in, in, in you know, moderating all these indirect talks that were ongoing in Vienna until this one in Qatar. But, you know, the Qataris support this. And so the EU also, they basically work together to facilitate these new talks. Of course, nothing came of that. But in advance of that, the Iranians had said, and it had been reported originally in Middle East Eye, that they had, you know, dropped their demand for the IRGC to be, you know, removed from the foreign terrorist organization blacklist that the State Department has. And this is a sweeping sanction that targets any and all, you know, current or former members of the IRGC, including uh, conscripts who served in non-military roles. So, one of the things that happens is you see that there are families broken up where the wife is in the U.S. and she's a doctor, but her husband, who's also a doctor, can't get into the country because he was formerly in the IRGC, but again, serving like as a medic or something. Uh, there's been instances where musicians who are supposed to play, you know, Iranian classical musicians who are supposed to play shows in the U.S. can't get into the United States because they formerly were in the IRGC. And uh, it's really gratuitous because the National Iranian American Council has a great write-up about all of this. But basically, the you know the IRGC is already under myriad sanctions. They've been like a globally designated terrorist organization since the end of the Bush II administration. Um, they're actually sanctioned for you know human rights abuses and ballistic and missile uh, you know ballistic missile sanctions. Yeah, they're actually, I'm not making this up, they were sanctioned for, quote, election interference in the previous election with Biden and Trump. So there's really, it's just a gratuitous thing. It, it was put in place by people like, you know, at the um, the behest of people like Mark Dubowitz, the neocon who runs the Foundation for Defense Democracies, Donald Trump and his sort of neocon Zionist advisors built what they call a sanctions wall, which is basically designed to preclude any future administration, particularly Democrats, from ever returning to the JCPOA for fear of looking soft on terrorism in this case, right? But, or, you know, in Elliot Abrams' point was that we're going to pile on all these sanctions and make it so complex that returning to the deal will be impossible. Um, so that's the agenda. And Biden has more or less played along with the whole thing. Uh, he went to the middle and, um, you know, even though the Iranians removed this demand, it didn't, make any difference in terms of the Americans, uh, you know, their nego their position in the negotiations in Doha. And I predict that that'll be the same case here today. And I will point out to you that I read conflicting reports because right now, so the AP had a piece where they were talking about, you know, the upcoming negotiations. And they were saying that the Iranians have now said that they, they said that the state run uh, news agency, uh, IRNA, IRNA in Iran had said that they had not remove that demand, that they also said that until basically until this whole dispute over the um, 
the unprocessed traces of uranium that were found at these three undeclared sites that America and Israel and Rafael Grassi, the director general of the IEA, refused to let this issue go. And it's traditionally been used over the last few years as a way of thwarting diplomacy whenever it looks like things are going in Iran's favor. Uh, so they said, we're not going to restore this monitoring agreement, the voluntary monitoring uh, agreement that has expired, you know, a while ago. And, and you know, after the IAEA or the U.S. Um, and the Europeans censured uh, Iran at the IAEA um, uh, meeting a couple of months ago for the, uh, you know, for supposedly being um, intransigent on this issue and uncooperative with the IAEA, when the Iranians have said, no, 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 we provided full documentation on all of this because we want to put this issue to bed. We're tired of it. And, uh, and, and they provided the documentation in this deal that was cut with Grassi, I believe in March, they actually provided ahead of schedule before this uh, quarterly uh, uh, meeting or um, however often the meeting comes up, I forget exactly. But this was this IAEA Board of Governors meeting a couple months ago. So after that, um, after they were censured, the Iranians, you know, disconnected uh, and several cameras and they said basically that um, they would not uh, – that, you know, they were not going to turn them back on. Essentially, the, the IEA wasn't even getting that footage anyway, um, because the monitoring agreement expired. Now, all the safeguards, you know, all the agreement, all the uh, safe, the safeguards agreement under the MPT, that's all still active. And the Iranians have been very upfront about that. And they said, look, 80 percent of the cameras are still in operation. Uh, you know, we're completely in compliance with the safeguards agreement under the nonproliferation treaty. But we're not going to what they have said, I guess, according to the Associated Press, is that they're not going to restore this monitoring agreement until the IAEA drops this whole provocative kind of dispute over these uh, untraced, uh, these unprocessed traces of uranium at these sites. But what I read in, in Bloomberg today was they were saying that the Iranians, they spoke to European officials who said that the Iranians have indeed dropped this demand to have the IRGC removed from the FTO blacklist. And also they said basically that they've also dropped their demand that Biden remain in the deal uh, for the duration of his, even this, this term, which ends in 2024. Uh, so they have basically, uh, you know, been more than cooperative. And uh, they also said that um, there is some agreement, uh, which is interesting, they weren't specific on indemnities to basically provide the Iranians with economic benefits, even if the Americans leave the deal again, or some future administration does, or if there's some act of Congress uh, that kills the deal. So that's kind of where things stand now. I mean, they, they impose new, they do this all the time now. It's basically they, they, They'll sanction some Iranian uh, petrochemical firm, and then you almost always it's companies that are in China and the UAE. One of the reasons why they go after these companies in the UAE, I mean, from what I've been you know, seeing, is basically so at the end of last year, you know, after the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan, there was a sort of outbreak of diplomacy where you had longtime adversaries speaking to each other and 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 actually kind of engaging in a positive way. Uh, because they actually did believe that the Americans were more or less leaving the Middle East and that whole region to focus on China, in particular with the Asia pivot, and also, uh, you know, Eurocom and Eastern Europe with NATO and focusing on Russia now and the whole great power competition uh, project. Um, now, that turned out not to be true. And I think Biden's administration and Brett McGurk uh, did a real like U-turn on all that. Um, but you had the Emiratis speaking with the Turks all of a sudden, you know, after the blockade had been lifted on Qatar, you had the Saudis speaking with the Qataris, you had the Iranians speaking with the Saudis. There's been a series of negotiations that were brokered by ba or talks that have been brokered by Baghdad. 
that have been going on that have shown some pro- uh, some promise. Um, and uh, but in particular, the UAE, their their national security advisor, I think it's Mohammed bin Zayed's brother. Um, but anyway, he went to Tehran. Uh, the national security advisor went to Tehran. And they discuss, like, you know, cooperating on a, a wide range of economic programs and, and all kinds of things. And the Israelis went absolutely ballistic and said that we're not going to tolerate an Abu Dhabi Tehran axis. And the Americans said that they were going to tighten sanctions on the UAE to prevent them uh, from uh, to prevent people in the UAE from uh, doing business with Iran. And so, you know, ever since then, we've seen a series of sanctions uh, laid on Iran that target these companies in the UAE and China. To, they've always said, in fact, the Wall Street Journal report, I think last year as well, they're saying that basically there's nothing else to sanction in Iran except for their their oil trade with East Asia. And um, so that's that's what we're seeing, you know. And bl- so the when blink when the sanctions were announced, someone asked Blinken, um, you know, are you so, basically are you prepared to return to uh, talks? And he said he basically sidestepped all their uh, questions and said that, you know, we, we don't really see that Iran is let me get the quote. He said um, it remains to be seen whether Iran is willing to, uh, and able to move forward. But they've shown every, you know, for more than a year now, they've shown that they have the, the full intent to do that. And it's the Americans who are completely dragging their feet. And they just went, you know, when Biden went to Israel, he signed this joint declaration with Yair Lapid saying they will, the Americans will use all their national power to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. And, uh, and basically said, um, you know, he, 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 his, he, his whole, their whole policy is basically that, um, they will use force as a last resort. And as you can see, they're expanding the maximum pressure campaign and basically refusing diplomacy at this point. While at the same time, I don't think it's been very successful, uh, thankfully, but there is this concurrent policy. Certainly the U S and Israel seem very interested in it, in building up, uh, this mini NATO style alliance led by the U S, uh, with Israel as sort of the number two, but grouping together all these Arab states that should be, that they believe can be a part of this alliance, military alliance that will surround Iran. And, uh, Benny Gantz has announced it's called the Middle East Air Defense Alliance. And that he says the, you know, the, the progress on it has been, has been much more significant than, than is public. Um, but I read a report in Reuters, uh, that we covered on conflicts of interest that Kyle Anzalone, uh, uh, our uh, news editor at the Institute and opinion editor at antiwar.com, we covered this. And basically one of the things that came out in the Reuters report was that the Saudis and the Emiratis are not too enthusiastic about this. And again, they mentioned that they still are kind of holding out to see if they can have some kind of, um, you know, some kind of uh, more positive relationship with Iran, which is, uh, which is a good thing. Um, and, and just speaking about all that, uh, uh, diplomacy. I think that's one of the ma- that that was breaking out in the region, uh, which Trita Parsi uh, covered uh, over at Responsible Statecraft quite a bit. Um, I think that one of the major reasons why they are refusing to return to the Iran deal is because I think that would be facilitated, uh, and the Israelis do not want that. The Israelis want to maintain, uh, you know, this permanent presence of the American. Um, you know, hegemon in the Middle East. In fact, that was one of the things that Bennett demanded uh, in his first meeting with Biden in the Oval Office in August when he said, uh, or maybe it was September, but uh, early September, late August, he said that his strategic vision for Iran is death by a thousand cuts, basically uh, myriad military and diplomatic attacks, as well as clandestine attacks and the gray area Stephanie 
uh, demanded that the U.S. remain indefinitely, U.S. troops in Syria and Iraq. Sorry, hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton Hotter Than the Sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, Scorpion Peppers, Dr. Pepper, Hydrogen Isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code SCOTT to get a free bottle of Hotter Than the Sun hot sauce. That's tnhotsauceco.com. Hey, y'all got to check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casali's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasali.com slash ronpaul, and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton and you'll save 25 bucks, and this show will get a little kickback too. That's rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. Casali is C-A-S-A-L-I, rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. And there's free shipping too. All right, y'all. Well, now I have to stop and wish happy birthday to KPFK. You know, this station has been around for 63 years, which also means that my show, Anti-War Radio, has been on the air for more than 17% of KPFK's lifetime, which is pretty good. And it's fundraising time here again at KPFK. The number to pledge is 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. Or go to kpfk.org. Well, look, running a radio station is expensive. Fortunately, we're broadcasting from one of the wealthiest cities in the world, a place where just one B-list celebrity could afford to keep the station going for a quarter without even missing it. I know it's trendy for all the center-left liberal hacks to sidle up to the war machine. That's how they prove they're not supposed anti-American leftists, by supporting militarism and mass slaughter overseas, especially when Democrats are in power. But I know there's some proud anti-imperialists in Hollywood who care a lot more about ending war than looking compliant and acceptable before the war party. America desperately needs a principled, well-financed, radical left that will prioritize peace and keeping up the pressure on liberal Democrats in office to stick with the people and not entrenched power. Just as the America First non-interventionist right is putting pressure on the Republican War Party, we have to keep the left focused on fighting that same kind of campaign against the Dems. Look at what's going on with the current Yemen war powers resolutions. In the House, it's H.J. Rez 87. H.J. Rez 87. And in the Senate, it's S.J. Rez 56. 56. Now, the vast majority of the co-sponsors of these resolutions right now are Democrats. And while some of them may specialize in this story and truly care, this is really about 99% due to the fact of the pressure created by left-wing, Quaker, and Yemeni expatriate communities in this country. Not a single cable TV news host has made this their priority. It gets essentially no coverage. But it's the worst war in the world, and we can help to end it. Tools like this radio station, the largest FM transmitter west of the Mississippi River, are absolutely essential. It won't be long for the whole world is suspended from Twitter for telling the truth about one thing or another. 
KPFK must remain. KPFK must remain so that we can get the word out and rally the forces of peace against the military-industrial complex and its minions. That's what this show and this station are all about. Since starting Anti-War Radio here on KPFK back in 2010, my expert guests and I have told the truth about and debunked every lie the Hawks have come up with to justify their interventions in Libya, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, and Ukraine, as well as national security state law-breaking and scams like the Russiagate hoax. The bottom line here, guys, is that the U.S. federal government and its world empire murder people every day, and they lie from morning to night to justify it all. So, our job is telling the truth and convincing the rest of the population to get on board the consensus and end the war state before it ends us. But we need your help to do that. It's as simple as that. It's 818-985-5735 to pledge your support. 818-985-5735 or kpfk.org. Dig deep, pitch in, and let's get this part out of the way so we can get back to the real business of exposing lies and supporting peace. That's 818-985-5735 or kpfk.org. And thank you. All right, we're talking with Connor Freeman from the Libertarian Institute. And Connor, can you talk a little bit about the effect all these sanctions have had on the Iranian economy and for regular civilians there? Yeah, I mean, from what I've seen, uh, the the estimates of the inflation rate is 40 to 50 percent. Uh, there have been medical shortages being reported by UN experts, Human Rights Watch, you know, where basically, even though there's so-called exemptions for medical goods, the medical companies, pharmaceutical companies, banks, and, sh and you know, basically anybody in between are just afraid to do any business with Iran on that level because they're, they fear, you know, facing the wrath of the Treasury Department. Uh, and now uh, the estimates are that um, half of the Iranian population lives below the poverty line. And there's been, you know, uh, quite a bit of... Um, uh, civil unrest going on in the country, you know, bread uh, over the prices of bread and things like this. Um, and uh, I mean, this is essentially what the, uh, you know, people like Richard Nephew calls himself a sanctions artist. This is what they like to see in countries where we wage economic war. Um, in fact, you know, uh, just as far as, you know, COVID hit the Iranian population very hard and the Associated Press reported that U.S. sanctions, while allowing for humanitarian aid, have made international purchases of medicine and equipment much more difficult. Iran has endured multiple waves of the coronavirus with nearly 118,000 deaths recorded, the highest in the region. So um, and, you know, they, they applied for a, uh, a loan from the IMF, and I believe it was for uh, five billion dollars. Uh, and the IMF, presumably under pressure from the U.S., denied uh, loans respectively to Tehran and uh, Caracas as well. Is obviously politically motivated. The the sanctions policies uh, have hurt worst people with cancers, multiple sclerosis, hemophilia, uh, AIDS, diabetes, uh, and epilepsy. And there's just um, you know terrible stories you can hear about people just being unable to obtain life saving medicines. Uh, and and also the prices of staple goods and foods have just become and automobiles and housing have just become prohibitively expensive as a result of the uh, the economic war. And, and of course, you know, the, the currency has just been largely destroyed. Yeah. All right. Now, so you have this great piece at uh, the Institute as well called The Next Giuliani Moment, No War with China. And of course, the Giuliani moment is, well, there are a lot of them, aren't there? Uh, <laughs> 
this is the one where Ron Paul told the truth about uh, the terror war all being blowback from the previous policy of dual containment in the Middle East in the 1990s in his big fight with Rudy Giuliani during the campaign of 2008. And so what's that got to do with China now? Let's start with that. Yeah. Okay. So and I wrote this in anticipation of the Pelosi visit to Taiwan. Uh, which has caused uh, probably the worst tensions around the island, at least since the third Taiwan Strait crisis. But it looks like this will actually be worse. And it was totally unnecessary. But it was also part and parcel of this Asia pivot that was launched by Barack Obama in 2011, the largest military buildup since World War II, shifting two-thirds of all air and naval forces to the Asia-Pacific, targeting China. Um, And it was expanded by Donald Trump and then uh, vastly escalated under Joe Biden. And so my point here in particular was to say that, you know, if you look, if I think the Giuliani moment, everybody would agree was really a breakthrough, not just for Ron Paul, but for the anti-war movement. I think it was, at least in my lifetime, the first time that Republicans were basically allowed to say, we don't support this anymore because Ron Paul stuck to his principles and said, you don't have to change anything else about, you know, your conservative politics. You just have to understand that our actions have consequences. And how would we feel if somebody else did this to us? So what I was thinking was, you know, because there is this real substantive, I think, at least on the part of the constituents, opposition to this new Cold War with Russia at this point. The American people see what's happening to their economy with food shortages and gas prices and inflation. And all they see is the Americans being told to suck it up and just pay pay for this war in Ukraine because it's about the liberal world order and we're in it for the long haul and we're prepared to support Ukraine until, you know, until victory is won, like Nancy Pelosi said. Uh, And basically, the American people have been totally slapped in the face uh, and we're sending, I believe, I mean, it's $54 billion at this point that's been pledged to Ukraine, most of it in military spending. It's set to surpass the State Department's budget. And nuclear tensions and tensions with Russia are arguably worse in the Cuban Missile Crisis because Biden is not speaking to Putin. And when Blinken did finally meet with Lavrov, he refused to discuss the war other than to make threats. Um of severe consequences and all these things. So I basically applied this to China and said, look, this is, I mean, basically taking what Michael Bolden calls the Scott Horton rule, fighting, you know, uh, fighting the right from the right. And basically what I'm saying is, look, this is the Democrats project. This is everybody you hates project. Hillary Clinton said the South China Sea is a national security uh, interest of the United States. Obama launched this Asia pivot. It's going to cost trillion, it, you know, trillions of dollars. It's the main justification for these uh, defense budgets that are getting close to $900 billion a year at this point. You know, they call it the pacing threat. Everybody hates General Mark Milley, the Joint Chief of Staff. He says, until recently, America was the unchallenged global economic and military power. But with China's rise, that is changing and we have to put a stop to this. And um, it's basically, you know, it's I tried to basically show how it's very similar to the buildup with Russia. And so for the same reason, we should oppose this new Cold War with China. So, for instance, You know, people might think Biden is weak on China, whatever, because of the Hunter Biden controversies or uh, whatever it is just in in their in their media circles. But I wanted to point out, look, Biden, compared to Trump, has nearly doubled the number of aircraft carrier strike groups that have been sent into the South China Sea. Uh, He has flown 2000 sorties by November of last year, flew 2000 sorties of spy planes 
uh, and military planes in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, and the Yellow Sea. Uh, they sail, uh, Biden has sailed warships through the Taiwan Strait uh, every, nearly every month. Um, and we have troops now openly deployed to the island. We have openly, uh, well, he has in air quotes gaffed several times saying that we're committed to Taiwan's defense, that we'll fight, uh, China in a war with them, you know, before this crisis in, uh, you know, uh, with Pelosi going to Taiwan, we had already sent the USS Ronald Reagan uh, into the South China Sea to conduct war drills. I mean, he loosened decades old restrictions on, um, you know, U.S. officials uh, engaging with uh, Taiwan, Taiwan government officials. And basically the State Department's official policy now is to encourage deepening our unofficial relationship. And uh, they've been sending congressional delegation after congressional delegation and all kinds of officials to Taiwan, uh, stepping over the one China policy to the point where it's just almost uh, irrelevant at this point, except that it's maintained the peace, you know, since 1979 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess my point to everything, mean, it's kind of like when you look at policy with Russia, if you look at like Reagan and George H.W. Bush, uh, you know, Reagan uh, negotiating the INF Treaty and uh, and reduce and beginning the, you know, ending the Cold War with Gorbachev and, and Bush one reducing the nuclear stockpile down by tens of thousands uh, and working with the Russians to do that. I mean, the, you look at the Republicans of today and it just bears no resemblance because of the they've been infected with neoconservatism. But my point yeah. with this article was to show that this policy is absolutely bipartisan. If you look at this new Taiwan Policy Act of 2022 that Bob Menendez has put in place, uh, you know, they're talking about turning Taiwan into a major non-NATO ally. Uh, you know, in, in sending them four point five billion dollars worth of uh, weapons over four years. Uh, and, and they have all these uh, sanctions that they want to impose in the on, you know, finance, all these financial institutions in China, you know, key industries and virtually the entire political elite, including President Xi. And, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to turn the quad quadrilateral security dialogue with, uh, you know, the U.S., Japan, India and Australia into this the foundation for a NATO style alliance that'll surround China. And, uh, of course we have this, you know, uh, which of course would embolden the Taiwanese to declare independence and provoke a war, which would be yeah. the most likely result of that and predictable enough. And I'm sorry, we're just out of time here, but, uh, it's really great stuff. Find Connor Freeman at the libertarian Institute. That's libertarianinstitute.org. And these pieces are Biden and allies continue to put Iran in the crosshairs and the next Giuliani moment. No war with China. Thanks very much, Connor. Thank you, Scott. All right, y'all. And that is Anti-War Radio for this morning. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director of Antiwar.com and the editor of the new book, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Find my full interview archive at scotthorton.org and youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And follow me on Twitter at scotthortonshow. I'm here every Sunday morning from 9 to 9.30 on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. See you next week.